Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Rambler. I am your host, Mike McDonald. And uh, for those of you first-time listeners, this is a podcast about international adoptees and international adoption and transracial adoption as well. Really all kinds of uh, adoption-related issues. And who's the audience? You're the audience. You're the audience. Uh, Adoptees, adoptive parents, prospective adoptive parents, friends and families, and people whose lives have been touched by adoption. And uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing, then keep listening, because today we have a very, very special guest. Holly McGinnis is on the show today. What? What? Are you kidding me? Holly McGinnis. That's right. The founder of also known as in New York City and and powerhouse in the adoptee community. Yes, she is a force to be reckoned with, folks. She is somebody who is a heavyweight in the adoptee community. Holly is a, uh, a good friend of mine, an old friend of mine at this point. Uh, not old. She's, I'm not calling you old, Holly. All right. She's at the, uh, the tender age of uh, 24. We'll go with 24. She's 24 right now. Uh, much younger than I. Uh, but we've known each other for a very long time, since I was in college, actually. Uh, when I started uh, working with Holly and also known as her organization that she founded. She's a Korean adoptee who is currently getting her PhD in St. Louis. So cool. I'm so happy that she could do the show, and I'm happy that, uh, an honor that she w- was able to help me out. Anyways, uh, this week was a crazy week for me. Just got back from Orlando, Florida. Orlando. Great place. Uh, I haven't been to Orlando in a very long time. Went to Disney. Did you ever been there? You been to Disney? Of course you have. It's the happiest place in the world. Happiest place in the world for a lot of people. I feel like Disney is one of those places that uh, people think that kids like, like little kids. Little kids, I think, hate Disney World. (laughs) I think it's a frightening and overwhelming sensory overload experience for a child and for many adults as well. But children especially, like small children. I think the happiest people at Disney World are actually uh, teenagers and parents who think they had a great time when they were a kid. And really, maybe they didn't have a good time when they were a kid, but they were too young to remember. And now they're putting their children through this repetitive torture cycle that they find themselves in, thinking that they're going to have a good time too. But really, it's a lot of walking, and it's very hot. And uh, the kid gets tuckered out pretty quick. And then you realize that there's like three days left in your vacation, and you're like, oh, God, what do we do? And so you go to Epcot to find the the margarita bar, and nobody blames you for that. Uh, in any case, I had a great time. Uh, looks like they did a lot of updating. This is the last time I was there, probably over a decade ago. Uh, to include uh, one of my favorite rides, which is Star Tours. I, uh, I love Star Tours. I don't know what it is, but uh, I can't wait for I don't know if you've heard about this. They're opening a new Star Wars land in uh, Disney World and Disneyland. And I cannot wait. I can't wait for it to open. I'm a big nerd. I know. Anyways. <clears throat> Star Tours got updated with latest Force Awakens stuff, and uh, it made me very happy to be able to go do that. I also uh, went on for the first time that I can recall Mission Space, uh, which was a good time. And uh, I'm really happy I got the opportunity to go back to uh, Disney as an adult because I feel like it was that much more rewarding. Plus, there was I, I have a friend who works down there, so there was uh, plenty of drinks involved as well, which made it an even more enjoyable trip than I think it usually would be. In any case, uh, let's uh, let's get started with the show here. Listen to my interview now. 
with Holly McGinnis, founder of also known as an all-around amazing person. How have you been? I've been all right. Uh, we've known each other for a while now. When did we first uh, meet? When did we first meet? Well, I think you were still in college. I definitely <laughs> was still in college. Or at least I might have just been starting college, actually. You, you might have been just starting college. Because <laughs> if it was around like 2003-ish, mm. uh, I had just – because I hadn't heard about AK until I – basically started college oh okay um been... and the only reason i heard about it was because I, I was doing camp counseling at holt camp in new jersey that mm-hmm. summer of 03 and then another counselor basically who had just started exploring adoptee issues uh started getting involved in aka too and she kind of wanted somebody who had been involved with adoption and stuff like that for a long time to help her out uh-huh. And so I started going to AK events with her. Oh. And stuff like that. And I think then you were first... snagged and you were hooked. I was hooked. And then I started doing like the youth mentorship program. Yeah. <laughs> and the forums and the speakers bureaus. <laughs> <laughs> and all this other stuff that you had set up. <laughs> Did we ever get you to serve on the board? Yeah. Uh, I was on the board of AK in 2000. Four and five, I think, back when I was, okay. like, co-directing the youth program and creating the teen program with Caroline and Meehan. Oh, yeah. nice. That was a long time ago. <laughs> that was, like, ten years ago now. Maybe, oh, God, it was longer than ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. It really is. But, yes, Where I ended up doing go? the board. What? Yes, I ended up doing the, uh, the board. <laughs> <laughs> so, wait, so you are the founder of... Of also known as in New York. I am. That's crazy. That is crazy. And you started um, in 96? It was started, yep, launched in January of 1996. Officially kind of had people. um, Our first official meeting was July of 1996. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's hard to believe that it is going to be the 20th anniversary this year, 2016. Yeah. (laughs) It makes coming? me feel old. I started it when I was four. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty impressive to start a 501c3 at the age of four. Yes. <laughs> Just one more reason to be impressed with you. <laughs> no, actually, I was 24 when I started it, um, which I, I think is was pretty young even back in the day. I, you know? I agree, because I don't think uh, even now I could start a nonprofit organization. So Yeah. Well, I certainly never planned on starting a nonprofit that was never in my um, foreseeable future, but mm-hmm. I had um, taken a leadership class, and um, in the course, you were supposed to identify your different communities, mm-hmm. and I had known about the um, the international adoption community since college, because that was when I really started to engage in questions around my racial and ethnic identity and kind of wondering, you know, how did I fit in with an Irish last name, this Korean face and a blonde hair mom. (laughs) Um, And so 
um, that was the first time that I learned that there was so many, at least Korean adoptees. And I mm-hmm. remember thinking, and there was a little seed, I guess, that was planted in my head. I'm like, wow, there's like almost 200,000 of us. I've only met like two in my <laughs> life. <laughs> um, and so when I had, um, you know, finished college and my most immediate goals were just like, what will I do to make money and that sort of thing. Um, doing this leadership course had me think, go back and start thinking about some of the things I had um, thought about in college again. Again, I never really thought of starting an organization per se. I, I just thought, well, all right, so if this adoption is a, one of my communities, what is a project I could develop? And I was thinking, oh, a mentorship would, would be really cool because I grew up really not knowing anybody else who mm-hmm. um, uh, had been adopted overseas except for like one kid in my elementary school and one kid in my high school. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to meet other people. Um, but more importantly, I think is I just was, um, I didn't want to be alone anymore. I think that's mm-hmm. what it ended up happening. So although I started also known as with this idea of, um, starting a mentorship program. And so I think that's one of the things that, um, marks our organization a little differently. We, we started the organization to, to provide a service. We never started it for just socialization. We found mm-hmm. we had to add the socialization because, you know, people wanted to do other things besides just volunteering. Sure. But the, that, that was the real impetus for um, getting people together. Um, and I did find that um, having something bigger to do, like uh, giving back or contributing or uh, making a difference somehow with the lives that we were given uh, was a really effective way of building a community. And I think for a lot of people who might be listening, who uh, grew up um, more your age group, (laughs) you know, with the access to culture camps and stuff, they didn't know what it was like for the earlier generations who came and especially those after the war, um, Mm -hmm. those in the 60s and my generation in the 70s of not having community, of being truly completely isolated. Um, And in this day and age, you know, you're you're as isolated as your computer, you know, like that's (laughs) all you have to do is log in and you can connect with somebody. But, you know, back in 1996, the Internet was only really getting popular, yeah. you know, also A-L-1 known as we were maybe the second website for adoptees, <laughs> international adoptees ever, you know, if not the first, um, right? if not the first, right. And, um, and literally the way I found adoptees was showing up at places. So like one of my funniest um, memories with trying to connect with adoptees was, um, in May of, I get May. Yeah, I guess it was May of 1996. There was the Asian American Heritage Festival. Uh, it was at Lincoln Center. And I literally went from table to table to booth to booth saying, Hi, I'm Holly. I was adopted from Korea. You know, if you know anybody who's adopted, I'm starting an organization. I would love to. And it was so incredibly awkward for me because I never was that yeah. like forthright about being adopted. <laughs> and I remember one person saying, Oh, I know an adopted person. He's over there. And I go running over and introducing myself. <laughs> And he must have been like, who are you? Who was it? But <laughs> it was uh, Hyosung Vidal, uh, Jonathan Vidal at okay. the time. So I, it's funny because I've met a lot of people who went with their American names and then changed to their Korean names. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and so it was literally just by word of mouth and phone conversations. I remember um, somebody saying, oh, there's this guy named Peter Safasta. He's involved mm-hmm. with um, Camp Gay upstate. I think he's starting a group. And so... Cold call, I think. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Hi, we 
I remember we're, uh, we ended up talking for like over an hour and stuff like that, just about he was starting trying to start a group with some of the counselors from Camp Mujigay, uh called Oak, um, and we kind of the very first. Um, Logo was actually a merger of this idea of um, oak, which is kind of like that we were these seeds kind of, you know, flying around or whatever. And uh, my idea of also known as of us being multiple identities and creating a space where we could be all of who we are rather than having to choose one identity over another identity. Um, And, you know, it is my hope. I I think that that also known as created that space for people to explore safely, Mm -hmm. you know, on your own terms. Um, and it's um, always been my hope that that is what uh, also known as ultimately created was that space to explore and be be yourself. I think for in a large part that that's true. And I think it, obviously the amount of adoptee uh, led and organized groups has proliferated, not just within the United States, but across the world. Yes. So obviously we have BKA up in Boston. There's Kahi out in Hawaii. There's a number of yeah. groups all over the country that have kind of come out, sprung, sprung board out of, I, in my opinion, out of AKA since we were one of the, I, I'm not, I say we as a royal way, but your group uh, yeah, yeah. really kind of kicked off in the U.S. because like you said, you know, there wasn't really those kind of resources for adoptees available prior to that. Yeah. Even today, a lot of groups that circle around adoption as a topic uh, were and kind of are currently led by adoptive parents or adoptive families rather than adoptees by themselves. Yeah. So... It's true. And I do want to give credit that the first Korean adoptee groups, you know, were started in Europe in the 80s. And then um, there was a group started in Minnesota um, by Wayne Berry. And then also known as um, actually the SoCal people, they got started in 94 and also known as NAAAW got started in 96. But again, I think one of our our, um, distinguishing marks was the fact that we were a service organization first and foremost, um, you know, at the launch. And then, um, and, and then I think, uh, I think for, uh, the, at least Korean adoptee, um, community, the 1999, the very first gathering of the first generation was really, um, um, the way we kind of made a national presence. Um, and again, I think everyone had been, up until that point, kind of isolated. I, I remember a 1997 uh, meeting with uh, people from SoCal group at um, a gathering of Korean uh, Global Korean uh, Network Conference. And um, that was the first time that I met with like uh, like 60 other adoptees from around the country. Mm-hmm. But the 1999 gathering was really, I think, because it made national news um, and it was really instrumental, I think, in, in, in in making a um, more uh, national and international because there were some European adoptees who had attended that. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. So let's go back a little. So you were talking about uh, how you kind of grew up a little bit isolated from other adoptees, except for maybe one uh, growing up and another in high school. Yeah. Um, Where, where did you grow up? Did you grow up? uh, I grew up about an hour North of New York city in Westchester County. Okay. Uh-huh. Which is more diverse now um, mm-hmm. than when I was growing up, but it's still not super diverse. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I think also uh, when I started also known as I didn't want to have like uh, just be known as an adoptee. And again, that's mm-hmm. why it was never named Adopted Korean Association, because I feel like as adopted people, we are so much more than our adoption. Right. And yes, we need to start with our adoption 
adoption stories and and um, and look at the holes that are our inheritance, unfortunately, because of the way adoption is a practice. But ultimately, we are so much more than all of that. So, yeah, of um, uh, and and I hope that that people have that sense of because I, I think I remember at times growing up. Uh, particularly probably in in college or maybe high school as well, thinking, gosh, you know, why is my life so complicated? Why can't I just have Korean parents and, (laughs) you know, just fit into the box? It's really, you know, it gets tiresome to have to explain how you don't fit into your family or um, that sort of thing. And the fact of the matter is is that transracial adoptees, we – have to explain our families, you know, starting from like four or five or six years old, you know, so it gets tiresome. But ultimately for me, I think the shift happened was when I could think about, well, you know, but we're given very unique lives. Not everyone gets to be adopted internationally. We're a very, even though we feel like we're a lot of people, we're, we're like a very small part, for example, of, of kids who needed families in Korea who got them, you know, for, for the last 60 years. So we're so so. What can we say? What can we teach? What can we um, push the envelope about? Given our lives, rather than um, than feeling disadvantaged because our lives don't fit into the nice boxes that society would like to place us in. Yeah. Uh, so it takes a little bit of, I guess, stubbornness. <laughs> and um, uh, and I know for myself, I don't think I could have created that mental space if I didn't have the community to kind mm-hmm. of be like but I'm not the only one and then for me when I started also known as it was my conversations with other second third generation Korean Americans it was I met a woman who um, was a white woman who grew up in Japan and she said to me you know it was so strange when I came back to America and everyone looked like me and I like laughed I was like that's how I felt about when I went to Korea (laughs) you know suddenly uh, you know, people who look like me, but culturally, I didn't fit there, you know, and that's what she was saying, too, is that even though she was a white one, because she grew up in Japan, and when she came back to America, she didn't feel like she belonged there, because inside was different, and so I realized that, especially in terms of our um, kind of dual identities, and identities that don't knit, you know, our, our outsides not matching what we feel like on the inside, mm-hmm. um, it's not unique just to transracial adopted people, like that it happens um, in, um, to many different uh, sorts. So I really feel that our community is bigger than just the transracial adoptees, you know, it, yeah. it is people whose lives transcend more than one nation, culture, and race, and there are many circumstances in which people might find themselves in that, in that group. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. And I thought uh, it, it's interesting because I remember being a kid growing up in New Jersey uh, and experiencing racism as a child and wishing yeah. upon those kids who were picking on me that they had an experience where they went to Korea or somewhere else where they were a complete fish out of water too so they know how yes. it felt like. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and, um, and it's, you know, again, it's being different is not easy. you know and sometimes you want to break from it you know and um i i think that those are all reasonable things um but yeah in any other different you know flip of a switch you can be the minority or the majority you know Mm -hmm. and and sometimes you're the majority in one aspect of your life but a minority in another aspect of your life you know well sure and it goes both ways on another side of the coin too because you know a lot of adoptees that end up 
going to or moving to Korea or their country of origin okay. realize that they also don't fit in there. They might fit in on the outside, but on the inside they are completely different. Yeah. And the culture there might not even accept them because they don't speak the language or they yeah. just have a lot of cultural nuances that don't match with the rest of the country. Yeah, exactly. And it was interesting because I, um, with also known as I felt like, how can we create our own culture, you know, mm -hmm. as adoptive people? And I think looking now, like over the past 20 years, we've achieved that, you know, we've have adopted artists and writers and, you know, you know, trying to get at and grasp at like kind of this unique life that we've been, right. you know, handed over. And, and again, I, I think that there is, um, um, there is utility in saying like, you know, this is really hard and, um, what can we do differently? There's also utility and I don't see as much of it of saying, um, how can we push the envelope in terms of what it means to be an Asian American and what it means to be an American and what it means to be Korean, you know? And, um, and I think, um, it'd be really exciting to really challenge the community and say, you know, what can other people learn from us rather than how can we fit into Korean society or American society and all sure. that kind of stuff. Um, and to me, that's where the sense of empowerment really comes from is like, mm -hmm. no, we have lessons to teach you. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, and you know, there's um, something really valuable in, in our experiences for what they are. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and I think that's part of the aim of this podcast is to help uh, other people, not just adoptees, uh, kind of get exposed to this subculture that we've developed and created as a space mm -hmm. for ourselves. Yeah. And that we have very unique perspectives and experiences that we can share with the world that would be yeah. uh, eye-opening, I think, to a lot of different people. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think that a lot of... I think a lot of what people hear from adopted people are our losses, are the things that we didn't yeah. get. Sure. Um, and I would love to hear more about um, adoptees saying what they did get, not in the sense of being lucky or all those kinds of other stereotypes mm -hmm. of like the uh, adoption being really good. But, but you know, how has adoption made you a more thoughtful person? You know, like the adoptees that I've met, and again, it's, it's, it's a, it's a product of the fact that at age five and six, people don't expect us to be a part of our families. And we're explaining these complicated relationships, yeah. you know, our entire life, you know, but how does that shape a person then, you know, mm -hmm. for better or for worse or for challenges or for strengths, you know? Um, and I think it's really interesting because research has actually indicated that to have resilience, you need some strain, some stress, you know, yeah. but not unmanageable stress. And I right. think that that's a really key distinction is that mm -hmm. sometimes, um, especially for transracial uh, adoptive parents who are white, you know, the issue of race is, is so uncomfortable that they abandon their child on that issue, you know. Yeah. Um, and so the full strain of being racially different and dealing with the racism and all this stuff falls on the kid. But when we have the support and we experience some of that stress, you know, but not the full burden of it, <laughs> you know, it actually makes for resilient people, you know, and stronger people. Um, well, when I used to do those forums with uh, uh, prospective adoptive parents or adoptive parents who are going through uh, post-adoption services, um, a lot of them would ask me that question. And I, I never really, I don't know if I had the greatest answer uh, always about, uh, you know, when people are approaching me or my kids about, 
race. You know, what, what are we supposed to say about that? I was yeah. like, uh, I don't know. Cause my, my parents, uh, you know, obviously are white people and they don't, <laughs> they didn't necessarily experience racism in the same way that, uh, we have experienced racism. Yeah. And it was more tangential. And so they said they, the way they, my dad would relate it to me was that, uh, he doesn't know what it's like to get picked on because of race or be bullied because of race, but he knows what it's like to be picked on in a, gen, in a more general sense. Yeah. And so, you know, how are you dealt with bullying uh, that way? But, you know, what yeah. what would you – what do you think is better advice for, for parents to open up that yeah. issue? Yeah. I think um, I, re- I was just reading a very interesting piece about complex trauma and uh, attachment and that basically – Denying someone's experience, um, especially for a child, is is tantamount to abandoning them. You know, so I think what your parents did was acknowledge the fact that that was your experience, and is when we say, "Oh, that didn't happen to you," mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> um, when it did happen to that child, you know, uh, because you're not comfortable with it, that's when we hurt our children the most, um, when we deny them their experiences. And so, yeah, I mean, I think for me, the big switch went on my, in my head was, I'm like, I will never know what it's like to walk around as a five foot 10 white man, you know? (laughs) And when I can accept that, then I can accept the fact that my parents obviously don't know what it's like to be a five foot three Korean woman (laughs) and, and the lived experiences because of that. Um, and, but yet we, but again, we can acknowledge that those experiences have happened to one mm-hmm. another. And, you know, very in the early days of, um, of also known as when I started to speak and other um, uh, founding members of also known as started to speak to adoptive parents, we would occasionally have a parent stand up and, te- and say, that didn't happen to you. And we had just finished, you know, telling a story <laughs> about yeah. something that had happened to us, wow. you know. Um, and, uh, and, and again, that out and out just denial uh, that, that these things can, can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, I think, most harmful. And that's the thing that when I've heard adoptees in the most pain, you know, it was when they talk about their adoptive parents just not acknowledging the yeah. fact that they have had these experiences and, right. and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think that that's the, the biggest thing, acknowledging your own limitations about what you, you can know, um, and acknowledging that your child will have different experiences and, and being able to listen in and validate that that happened to them. <laughs> they don't have to solve it. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have to solve it. Is that, but just say, yes, I, yeah, mean, I can yeah. see how that could have happened. And, and if we were being honest, I mean, this is not limited to adoptees, obviously. I mean, no. Uh, this happens with all race issues and I yeah. hear people denying that it's even – and I feel like the definition of racism and discrimination has shifted uh, to serve people who are denying that racism and discrimination still exists. They're like, well, that's yeah. not racism anymore. Or racism yeah. doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Like, look, we elected it, a black president, so racism doesn't exist. I was like, that, that yeah. doesn't – that argument doesn't hold water to me. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And 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 it doesn't it doesn't mean that it's a personal thing, you know? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, again, like the switch that went off is that I also am racist, like, mm-hmm. especially before I, I really began to do my own work. A lot of people of color have internalized racism. So I had a lot of negative opinions about Asian men. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. What, what negative opinions about Asian men? <laughs> 
but I remember being in fourth grade and with my very best friend. She was my next door neighbor, um, Brenna. And we were like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, cue on her and, and Alex Wu, not cute. <laughs> you know, fourth grade, oh. we decided that the two, that the only two Asian boys, <laughs> you know, in the grade were not cute. Um, that obviously changed for me because I, I know very now many married. handsome Asian men and I'm married <laughs> to one. But, you know, back to your point of like, this is not unique to like white parents who adopt transracially. I'm raising, uh, you know, two boys now mm-hmm. and my husband is adopted from Korea. So we have that added component to it. Um, and I struggle a lot because I find like if an incident happens, I want to shut down. I want to deny it because those are all the ways that I coped with it growing mm-hmm. up. And like, I won't do the denial that it happened to him, but I do wonder, I'm like, how do I help him to understand what happened to him, you know, without making it a major deal, but also fully acknowledging that as human beings, we discriminate. We categorize people into into groups, and that's kind of how our brains short circuit. You know, having to think complicated yeah. <laughs> in, in complicated yeah. ways. It's so it's our it's our human nature, right? Right. So the key is to distinguish when we're doing that, and then making and then distinguish when we're making judgments or decisions based on that kind of discrimination. You know, um, and but I I struggle with it too. And just because you are a person who experienced it doesn't mean that you're most effective in ter- helping. You know, so it's um, I think this is a bigger issue that we all struggle with. And how do we and I think like the way out is, again, knowing yourself, knowing what's going on in your brain, um, acknowledging that 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 we all do this. Um, and it's not bad and wrong. It's only bad and wrong when we do it unconsciously. <laughs> Actually, I just found this term uh, last year doing my own research and it's called a uh, metacognitive Mm-hmm. And it's basically thinking about the way you think. Yes. And very, yeah. very few people actually stop and do that. <laughs> yeah. Because most people just tough. kind of go through life oblivious mm-hmm. to actually how they think, the system of their thinking, yeah. and then why they think that way. And if yes. they should change it or not and recalibrate. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's where, I mean, the movement for mindfulness and all that kind of stuff, I think is so great because if you can do a five minute, like sitting mindfulness meditation, you will begin to become aware of what's going on in your brain. (laughs) You know, and there's a lot, (laughs) there is a lot of noise up in there. (laughs) I know. And, uh, judges me because one of my favorite films from last year, if not my favorite film from last year was inside out. Did you watch it? Did you end up watching it? And I thought it's just, it, a, it's a masterpiece of a film, but B, it, it takes a very complex, yeah, it's complex <laughs> issues of what's happening in people's heads and simplifies yeah. it, maybe a little bit oversimplifies it, but yeah. does a pretty good job of explaining what motivates human beings to act certain ways. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, you know, and so, so much of that meta stuff happens um, – you know, they, they are thoughts and dreams and wishes that you seeded into your consciousness when you were two and three before you even had language. And so it's really hard to, to get to it, to grasp Uh at it. Um, and I think like for adoptees too, when we think about our losses, you know, and those, uh, our birth families, you know, 
they are so hard to access um, as our, in our, our adult executive functioning brains yeah. <laughs> because they're all exist in our child, you know, childlike mm-hmm. animalistic uh, levels at parts of our brain. You know? Yeah, yeah. The, um, the very primal so, core of our memories. Yeah, yeah, they really are. And they are um, and they are formed before you had language, you know, so um, they're very primal. Um, and so they're very powerful, too, when they uh, do get resurrected. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because uh, this is something I remember is is a story related to me before I could speak or anything like that. And that's when I was adopted and uh, my parents took me on a trip down to our relatives who were living in Georgia. Yeah. And whether they know it or not, this is is what they ended up doing apparently was they were asking my parents uh, how I was ever going to learn English. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is, of course, before this, I'm like three months old. And they're like, yeah. what do you mean? How is he going to learn English? He doesn't know any language right now. <laughs> but, you know, it's that kind of, uh, I, I don't know if it's subconscious racism or like unconscious racism. Like, they're just not uh-huh. thinking about that as yeah. an issue. And it's like, to most people, you'd be like, that's a really stupid question. But I think right. they were earnest and they wanted uh-huh. to know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so, you know, to have something like that where obviously I was so young that I probably didn't realize that was going on, but that uh, that story was related to me. It was like those are the experiences immediately upon arriving to a different culture. Yeah. That this would be, uh, I, I don't know, foreshadowing, I guess, of what the rest of your life is going to be like. Right, Yeah. And I think it's 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 something that I even experienced, you know, living in New York City. And I remember, mm-hmm. you know, I'd be on the subway platform and I'd always have Asian people coming up and either trying to speak another language to me or, you know, desperately like looking for somebody who could help them because they were lost, you know, yeah. like. How to get <laughs> and I remember being like, why are they doing that? Like kind of like, like frustrated. And then when I went to Korea, I'm like, oh, because when you're in Asia and you have this space, you do speak that language, (laughs) you know, and that is their lived experiences. And so, you know, for them being in America and seeing my face, it was like a homing sign, you know? And, Mm -hmm. but for me and my lived experience, not being raised and knowing any language, it was like offensive, you know? And so, um, you know, I think what your, uh, relatives did is what we do do. We see this package, Mm -hmm. our brain, you know, cuts down and categorizes us all into one box. And you don't even think like how, how ridiculous what just came out of your mouth just, you know? right. um, because, and it's just the same way as when we go to Korea and Koreans are like, why can't you speak Korean? Mm-hmm. You know, because they grow up and they are imprinted that if you have this space, you're speaking Korean right. <laughs> and they have to work harder to understand how we could not speak it. And they still don't really. Yeah. But then <laughs> exactly. you tell them that you're adopted and they feel a deep shame. <laughs> yeah. And then that's a whole other can of work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, yeah. and then eventually they tell you that you should learn Korean. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, okay, well, it's not for um, and, lack of trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, I mean, that is our burden, I think, as transracial adoptees, but it's also our opportunity to be like, no, hello, not everybody who fits this 
you know, box does what you say. It's not right. genetic. If only it was genetic. If only right. it, oh, if only all these languages automatically came with this face, <laughs> I would be so happy. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but again, that's our burden. But that's also our opportunity. It's like, no, not everybody fits into your racial categories and racial mm-hmm. boxes, and every culture has them. Um, <laughs> well, I, I feel like that's. Uh, responsibility of anybody who experiences racism Mm -hmm. (laughs) to kind of step up and be like, no, not everybody is like this. You can't generalize in a larger sense and say all people of this color or all people, all all women or all men are like Mm -hmm. so-and-so and so. so. Yep, exactly. That might be easier to operate uh, in every day like, oh, okay. Because from 20 feet away, somebody who you don't know has already formulated an opinion about who you are. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and I think it's if you experience that, it's your responsibility to to step up and say, no, that's not right. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. So I, I had a similar experience on waiting for a train uh, going into the city uh, from New Brunswick <laughs> where I went to college, except this guy was asking everybody on the train platform for the time <laughs> for whatever <laughs> reason. <laughs> and uh, when he got to me, instead of asking for the time first, he said, do you speak English? Mm-hmm. And I was like, nope, no English, no English. And he looked really frustrated and then moved on. And then my phone rang. And while he was still within earshot, I answered my phone. And I was like, oh, hey, what's up? And he got me this like really evil look. And I was just like, well, this is kind of on you, man. Yeah, exactly. And the ironic part is I do have the time because I always have a watch yeah. on me. Right. So sorry, dude. I would have told you the time, but you know. Yeah. Yeah, you made a you made an uh, an assumption, so you're the ass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so moving on from AKA, you, did did you immediately start working for the Donaldson Institute after that, or what were no, you? Uh, no, not immediately. Career? Yeah, so um, I when I started, also known as I was actually what was I doing? I was doing uh, temp work and administrative work at uh, J.P. Morgan. Um, and, uh, and that then finally, awesome, by the way. <laughs> it was a really good salary, <laughs> I, I bet. <laughs> but at a certain point, and I was really like, also known as it was really my full-time job. I mean, uh, I did yeah. that. We met at night, we met on the weekends. Um, you know, it was, um, really satisfying. And then I kind of came to a point in thinking, I think there's some skills that I could learn and maybe do this better <laughs> and more effectively. <laughs> um, and then for me, the, the, you know, actually Joy Lieberthal, she had, she was working at the Donaldson Adoption Institute. And okay. uh, I remember meeting and having a lot of lunch uh, conversations with her and finally saying, like, I think there's like some skills I could learn. Like what, what would be good? And I always knew that I wanted to go back to school and get a master's in something, mm-hmm. but I wasn't sure what. And so she was the one who said, well, why not social work? And I was like, huh. Okay. And I saw the work that the Donaldson Adoption Institute was doing and, and kind of, I, I remember talking to Madeline Freundler, she was the director there and she had a, a social work degree and a master's in public administration degree and a law degree and she had a lot of things. Um, but I did see that like, oh, there, you could make an impact at this very like macro level of policy. But it was really... Um, uh, also known as we did, we organized two motherland trips. One was in 1998 and one was in 2000. And it was um, in collaboration with uh, a Korean American organization and um, Camp Sejong. And in the 2000 trip, um, I went as an escort to kind of, um, you know, 
as a tour guide. Um, and that was the first time that I went to an orphanage and I remember seeing the children and, and seeing how they behaved. And I had, you know, no training at that time on child development, but some of the children would cling to you. Some of them were just like, we didn't exist. I mean, they just, they had just shut us out. And I remember thinking what's going on. And this was a baby's home. So all the children were under the age of five. And then, um, and then we had this moment where all the little toddlers were sitting around a table having their lunch. And then we sat around that same exact table and I was like, Oh my God, we were these children. Like we, you know, and that, that just hit home with me. Um, and it made me think about like, okay, all of the experiences that we've been having as international adoptees are really important, but we got out of this situation and what happens to those kids who don't get out? Um, and so that really was the impetus then, uh, for me to get my, my butt going and apply, um, to get my master's in social work. So I, um, I did that and graduated in 2003 from Columbia university. And then I actually decided that, um, I really needed to know more about some of the challenges that families and children were going through. So I decided to uh, apply and I did a post MSW fellowship at the Yale Child Study Center where I really got to be immersed in kind of child and adolescent mental health and that sort of thing. Um, and then I got the job at the Donaldson Adoption Institute. So, um, and I worked there for five years and it was really, that was really where I learned a lot about the politics of adoption, um, all the different forces that are shaping that policy that have nothing to do with adopted peoples or adoptive parents lived experiences. Um, and, um, I, and I was, I guess, really shocked with how politicized adoption is. It seems like a simple thing, like find a child at home, but there are a lot more, a lot more to it than that. What are the major forces that you found were operating without consideration to you? Yeah. At at the policy level, um, adoption is colluded with abortion. So a lot of people who are anti-abortion are very pro-adoption with um, very little, you know, regard for how the institution of adoption has been set up. Um, Mm -hmm. And so um, it's a, it's a little bit less so now, I think, I think there's maybe a little bit more of a middle ground, but for example, one big issue that domestic adopted adults have been championing for, you know, 30 years has been access to their original birth certificates. Yep. Yep. Um, and that has been something that, um, has been very slow, but states are starting to move to open, uh, and allow domestic adopted adults access mm-hmm. to their original birth certificates. But the biggest barrier, um, to those efforts have been other organizations who basically say if adopted people have access to their birth um, certificates, then women, birth mothers, won't make adoption plans because they'll be found. Um, And that has been the strongest kind of um, barrier uh, for having access uh, or rationale. And and again, it's it's been kind of like no matter how much evidence we show that mo- majority of women who give um, a child up for adoption would welcome to be contacted again. They're not afraid, you know, and the, there's no evidence to show that because um, an adoptive person can have uh, can find a birth family like less women are choosing adoption. You know, that's right. not the drivers, uh, but it's so ingrained in so many people's thoughts that um, it's been very hard for um the uh, domestic adoptees who have been fighting that particular fight to make any movement at the legislative level. 
Yeah. Well, it's been my experience, and I think the experience of most Americans lately, that policymakers do not listen to logic or research necessarily, yes. unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it really is unfortunate. And I mean, part of my, my decision to leave and then um, pursue my PhD in social work was because I saw so much of the research being used to justify, you know, different policies. And I said, right. Some of this research is really old, you know, maybe we're not asking the right questions. So yeah. I want to be on the research end uh, of, of doing that. And also, I really wanted to uh, do some research on those kids in the institutions in Korea and learn about what their experiences are, are like. So let's talk about that a little bit. So you moved to Korea in the midst of your PhD program. <laughs> Well, I moved to do my dissertation yes. collection, data collection uh, through a Fulbright grant at a Korea Foundation grant, okay. which was amazing. It's, uh, how long were you there for? A year and a half. That's a good amount of time to live in Korea. Yeah, it, it was definitely a good enough time. <laughs> and actually, I mean, it fulfilled a lot of things for me because um, when I went to Korea for the first time, which was uh, the same year that I started, also known as. I remember thinking, I, I want to come back. I want to come and live um, at least like a whole year, experience mm -hmm. all the seasons. But I didn't. I wanted to do it in, in like uh, in the capacity of whatever career that I chose, and not just be, just to teach English or something yeah. like that. Yeah, so I I had to wait a long time, <laughs> but it <laughs> happened, and I got to go, you know, and bring my family, bring my son. Um, yeah. My husband was able to come with us, um, and then at the end of the trip. We uh, brought back another baby. <laughs> we grew our family. <laughs> yeah. So what was your work focused on while you were living there for your dissertation? Yeah. So my original dissertation idea was to look at the experiences of adolescents who were growing up in domestic uh, adoptive families in Korea. Uh -huh. There's very little research about them. Cool. Um, and in part, that's because adoptions in Korea have had a tradition of being secret, so the right, person yeah. doesn't know they're adopted. Yeah. But again, through organizations like MPAC, uh, Mission to Promote Adoption Korea, um, and other uh, groups in Korea, um, the last 15 years, there's been a real movement to at least um, um, have them be open so that the child knows that they're adopted. So I thought that this was a timely, um, you know, it was a good time then to maybe find out how... Um, these adoptees were, were doing and uh, compare them to the adolescents that were still growing up in institutions. And what I found was is that even though um, a lot of the families start off uh, open uh, and telling their children that they are not, that they are adopted in the community, by middle school, uh, a lot of times it's the children that say, I don't want people to know that I'm adopted anymore. I don't want to be the kid who's singled out and ostracized because I'm different. Yeah. And in Korea, that's a huge problem school bullying, ostracization, yeah, there's yeah. a term for it, wangto. Um, and so then the adoptive families will uh, move to another town and not tell anybody they're adopted. So um, that to me is a finding. And what that meant yeah. though, was that I only had 10 kids who were adopted domestically who were willing to participate. And that was not the, a large enough sample for what sure, I wanted to do. Right. Uh, so I ended up shifting my dissertation to just fit, focusing on the adolescents who are growing up in the institutions and the different facilities. So I interviewed 170 um, children from 10 different orphanages, um, and it was a quantitative interview. So it was a, a set, set of questions um, looking at kind of their mental health um, outcomes, school outcomes. I asked a lot of questions about their um uh, a relationship with their birth families and because particularly I was interested in how 
um, they think about their birth family could relate to mental health and um, school uh, outcomes, just in the same way that in the adoption research, is the loss of the birth family that's kind of like the primary loss um, and, uh, you know, can affect people in lots of different sorts of ways. So my research was saying, well, is that true also for kids who are in institutions? And what did you find out? Well, I'm still analyzing the data. Okay. Um, so, I mean, some of my preliminary stuff is that um, the kids in the institutions actually do have contact with their birth family. Um, I was surprised by that. I would say about 70% had some level of contact, but it varies a lot from like one contact ever to like everyday cuckoo talk or texting and that kind of stuff, you know, to everything in between. So I think it's the quality and the nature of the contact that's going to be kind of more telling. Um, but there is a subset of the kids who have no information, right. no contact, um, they were basically placed in an institution as babies and have lived their whole life and don't know anything. So they would match more of the adoptees uh, in the closed adoption where we have no right. information or access to information about our, our families of origin. Um, and uh, one of the kids said to me, you know, at first, because I asked him a question like, have you ever tried to get information about your birth family? And he first said no. And then he kind of revealed later on in the interview that he had broken in to the director's office to look <laughs> at his file because he never knew why he oh, was there, yeah. why he would have been placed there. Um, and in the context of Korea, it's so much more dire that you know your family, that you're able to produce some sort of history, right. um, that those kids who have nothing um, are, are really at the most disadvantaged because in Korean society, you have to talk about your family to get a job. Um, you have to produce a family hojak, <laughs> you know, yeah. even if it's the short one. Um, and so That's I... That's the genealogical um, history? What? That's the genealogical history? Right. Your hojak is your family registry. Okay. So it's the official uh, one. And, and again, that's been um, highly debated about... Uh, you know, employers even asking for that. Um, oh. and the fact that they can ask for like your full family registry. And, um, you know, this is problematic not only for orphan kids, but for single mothers, because if they get the full family registry, they can, they can see that there's not a dad, <laughs> but there's a yeah. child. Yeah. Um, and, and so a lot a of discrimination. What? That's still largely a stigma in Korea. It is. It is. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. So do you find that that's a shift from uh, adoptions in Korea historically where 70% of kids now have had some, even if it's a little bit of contact with their birth families? Um, for, for kids in the institutions, you mean to have contact? Yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure. Cause I'm not sure how much, um, contact kids in institutions have typically traditionally had, yeah. um, they might have had more in general because uh, typically the orphanage was um, really, you know, what most families use as a temporary, um, you know, when they kind of lost their jobs and there's no safety net and they wanted yeah. to feed their kid, they would drop them off at the institution. Um, I think the biggest shift that the directors told me about the pool of, of kids who are entering into the orphanages these days is the fact that the majority of them have some sort of um, experience of abuse or neglect. Um, and what they said, which was 
not the case, you know, uh, I don't know, 15, 20, you know, in the past. In the past, mostly the kids would enter in because the parents were poor. You know, they couldn't be fed. Um, now the kids are entering because somebody's called up and substantiated or they said, um, you know, this, this child's been neglected. And that's the reason why they're allowed to enter in. And so what one director said to me is what happens is um, when the kids, when there's a divorce, um, the kids are tend to be neglected by both parents, and then it's because of that neglect that they are they enter into the uh, orphanage. Wow, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, so they have uh, more more tough histories, I think, coming in. Yeah. Yikes! Yeah. So, has international adoption in Korea as a sending country slowed down then, and domestic adoption is on the rise? Because I know a couple of years yeah. ago they were trying to switch yeah. it a little bit. Yeah, they uh, they play with the numbers. <laughs> um, the with the passage of the uh, Adoption Act in 2012, which was fully implemented in 2013, there was a drastic drop in the number of international adoptions, and that was in part because cases were now going through the court, and the court was figuring out how to do that. So. Typically, there's been about, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 kids available for adoption overseas. Um, and that year, it dropped down to like 300. Um, so I haven't looked at the numbers for 2014 and 15 to see if they have kind of gone back up. Korea has always uh, really, I think since really like 2000s and stuff, um, have an unofficial quota. So they only let out 2,000 kids. It doesn't mean that there's only that number of kids who are in need of families. And again, what I, what I've learned is, is that, um, you know, kids who are earmarked for international adoption, they have to be considered for domestic for the first six months. So automatically they're delayed. Um, and then if they can find an overseas placement, um, if there's the quota is up for that year, they got to wait for the next year. (laughs) So that's why adoptions from Korea take a long time. Now overseas adoption from Korea take a long time and the kids tend to be quite older. They're losing a lot of foster parents because the the foster parents get attached because they're now fostering for up to two years. Uh, and then they don't want to foster another child because, uh, it's just so hard. Um, so the agencies are having a, a very hard time, um, with it. And then what I learned is that, um, an agency, if a child, so again, if uh, the birth mother has made a plan for adoption, if they don't find a family in four years, then the child goes into the institution. So, um, you know, so there's adoptable children, but because of age, because of quota, they'll end up in the institution and there's no, and, but the, their birth mother had a plan for them to be adopted. So it's really quite sad. (laughs) Yeah. So that sounds like it's complicated the issue quite a bit then. Yes, it has. It has. Um, and because the fact of the matter is, is, is that there's just still not enough of a demand for domestic adoption. And I think, uh, you know, adoption is so accepted here in America. Um, and we, as overseas adoptees, go to Korea and we assume that that is how uh, Koreans feel about it. But Koreans do not really think positively about adoption. Um, and so when adoptees talk critically about adoption, Koreans are like, yep, that's exactly what we think. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, <laughs> um, it's strange. It doesn't work. It's all those, you know, stereotypes. Right. Um, and, you know, uh, when I was talking to some of the domestic adoptive parents, you know, they're, some of the groups, uh, MPAC in particular, they go into schools and try to educate about adoption, but there's an, uh, this, you know, the stereotype that kids who are adopted are garbage. Um, so th- it's a real uphill battle to making adoption anything like uh, is the acceptability as it is here. 
Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Is there anything that uh, you can think of that would take to overcome those stereotypes about adoption in Korea? Yeah. Well, I think that the families that are speaking out now, um, you know, they, it has to come from within Korea. You know, right, yeah. I think I think that um, Koreans can benefit from hearing about adoptee stories also. But again, if we only so making adoption only only about like the successful adoptees or making it, you know, talking about adoption in terms of all of its problems, right. <laughs> you know, we need to find a middle voice about adoption, which is says it's complicated and we don't all end up, you know, I don't movie stars or whatever like that. Like we, <laughs> yeah. but we do end up having good lives, you know, uh -huh. and I don't know, you know, where that particular voice, um, is or uh, but but Korea needs to hear it you know mm -hmm. that it's not all like Pollyannish like so wonderful pie in the sky yeah, yeah. but it's also not horrible and it's not child abuse and it's not <laughs> you know yeah. um, that sort of thing too you know and it's it's hard to find that complicated middle ground of saying there's a lot of benefits there's some challenges these are the challenges but these are also what you can do and what's possible I mean, in general, Korea is a very black like, white culture. <laughs> well, I mean, not just Korea these days, right? I feel like even uh, here in America, you're either yeah. on the extreme left or the extreme right, and there's very yeah. little room for a middle ground to be like, well, you know, maybe either side is not the whole story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I, I, when I lived in Korea, I would often say, you know, Koreans are very modern society technologically, but I feel like it's very. America in the 50s and 60s culturally. Yes. yes. Yeah. I would agree with you 100%. And I don't know. Um, you know, I have some hopes, but I think that, like, for example, all of the families that I met who had adopted children, none of them were Samsung employees. You know, <laughs> um, they were mostly people who you know, had their own businesses, were able to be successful, um, and, you know, and decided that they spent their entire life, um, working hard. And, you know, they, ha many of them actually had grown children, biological children, but huh. then said, you know, I want something more meaningful and, you know, chose to adopt and stuff. Um, and so, so I think that in what needs to shift is the ideal of what the, perfect life is in Korea. And I think it's beginning to change a little bit. Yeah. But for those who want to be working at Samsung and you know LG and all that kind of stuff, it's a very narrow uh, razor's edge. Um, yeah. And adoption doesn't fit there. <laughs> Salary man. <laughs> I heard yeah. somebody say, I want to remake, uh, actually, it may have been me. <laughs> I want to remake uh, Mad Men, the TV show, but set in Korea called Salary Man. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> I feel like it'd be a big hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I kind of feel like, you know, some parts, like, especially the Koreans who I know who are my generation are in their 40s now, like, they're burnt out, you know, and sure. they, I think they're starting to want to think differently. They don't want to put their kids through the same things, you know, and burnt, and burnt out and, you know, all that kind of thing. So I have hopes that Korean society will change. Mm. Um, but there is, like, rampant discrimination and there's not a lot of anti-discrimination laws, uh, right. labor laws even. You know, like, yeah. it should yeah. be illegal for you to have to put a picture of yourself to apply for a job and show your family, <laughs> you know, right. like... Right. Um, 
but those are deep-seated things and you know again if you want to work at certain companies you produce whatever they tell you to produce and it's hard to change that from the outside especially because a lot of the times uh what i found is that they'll be like well that's just our culture that's our yeah. culture and it's like yeah. right well you it don't you see how this might negatively affect people who don't look yeah. like your family <laughs> or right you. yeah I, you know, it, it's not uh-huh. something that they think about right exactly <laughs> yeah right exactly and and i guess when i was there what i observed was is that um all of these issues that that uh are social issues are actually all interconnected so mm-hmm. just a small example is like the family registry uh thing and having to produce that to work that impacts all people who do not fit into the married heterosexual right. <laughs> you know, family yeah. so adoptive families single parents kids who are in orphanages and all that kind of stuff so um so this is so you know so if we address like uh anti-discrimination labor laws that like really prevents employers from getting your family registry we could protect actually a lot of people um (laughs) uh so they're more interrelated and and i think woven into the society than we realize so that if we just change like the adoption law that still doesn't help a lot of people we have to change the labor law that impacts the you know kids who are adopted who have to like then reveal that they're adopted because on the family registry it says they're adopted you know yeah all right. Well, before we go, I want to talk a little bit, if you don't mind, uh, about your personal life. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I think you have a very unique uh, perspective and experience when it comes to your marriage to Dan as a fellow adoptee and then raising kids. You're obviously yeah. at a different stage of life than some of myself and then some of the listeners that we have in terms of being <laughs> married with children. Yeah. Uh, so what was – how did first, how did you meet Dan? I don't even think I know this. (laughs) The short version or the long version? We'll go with the short one. (laughs) I met Dan through Leanne. Uh, so, uh, uh, Hanum Fadbella. Yeah, Hanum, okay. exactly. So they, they were roommates. Um, they met at the 1999 gathering and they mm-hmm. were both living in Connecticut at the time and decided that they were going to, wanted to move to New York City. And so, um, they were roommates and that's how I met Dan officially. So we were, we were friends. Um, I roped him into being on the board of also known as, I think he lasted <laughs> six months and then he's like, I'm out of here. But- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the irony is is that when I started also known as I was like, I'm never gonna date an adoptee, they've got issues. <laughs> I don't wanna be with that. Um but uh you know, but and and certainly, you know, when Dan and I then started to date and stuff like that, it was not because of the fact that he was adopted that we stayed together. You know, all of the important yeah. relationship things were there. But the fact that he is adopted is like the cherry on the cake, you know, because we can talk about things. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm more immersed in the adoption stuff. He's always been more interested in Korean culture stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so our interests have been different, but yet we can, you know, obviously talk and get each other and, um, uh, and learn from each other. And so for him, you know, uh, when I had the, got the Fulbright, we were, were talking about all going to Korea and stuff. And, you know, first he was like, well, you know, I think if I was younger, I would have been more excited about this as something I wanted to do. But then getting to go as a family was just um, another piece of my experience that, again, like I never 
could have imagined it happening. Um, but it, it happened at exactly, I think, the right time. And there's a lot of uh, adoptees going back to Korea um, yeah. as young people, 2030s, you know, without a family. But I, again, I think we were one of the few adoptees to go um, as a family. And, and that's a very different experience of Korea. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. Actually, I mean, for for me, I was like, oh my god! Like now, when I, you know, being in Korea, like with a kid, you're officially ajuma. You know, like that's like definition of ajuma. Is you have a kid. I feel like that comes with a lot of privileges, though. Being an ajuma, I feel like has a lot of unspoken power in Korean yes, society yeah. and culture. Yeah, it's so true. Like I, because I still look kind of young and I act kind of young, whatever. Like when I would tell you people are that kind I had of a young, Holly, you're still young. <laughs> Oh, thank me. <laughs> I'm trying to keep it up. <laughs> but um but as soon as I knew I had a kid and stuff it was like, oh okay, like like they they listened to me with a little bit more like respect, I guess, you know. Mm. Um but um it's been you know, it's it's interesting cuz again, this is something that Dan and I have talked about especially with having a child is that if Dan was Korean American, like Kai, my son, who's, who's going to be turning eight, he would have a whole half of a family, <laughs> you know, that represented his Koreanness. Yeah. But the fact is, is that because Dan and I are both adopted, his Koreanness is only from solely us. You know, right. there's no extended kin and family and stuff. So getting to bring Kai to Korea and giving him a lived experience of Korea that goes beyond just Dan and I, um, I think was really you know, meaningful for us and hopefully meaningful for him. Um, and, you know, I had a moment when Kai was, was very young and I had a book that was like peekaboo, I love you. And you open the door and you would see a face of somebody, you know, and it was like, mommy, daddy. And then I was like, um, I was like, Oh, you know, mommy was blonde hair. I'm like, that's not what mommy looks like. And then daddy, you know, was a white, white guy. I'm like, Oh, that's not what daddy looks like. And then it was like, grandma. And then grandma was like, you know, little old white lady and I was like oh that is what my grandma looks like you know um, did you replace so, the pictures yeah but it is really different and I I'm um you know and Kai's just at the age where he's you know really at a more conscious level understanding that there's ethnicity and races and yeah. cultures and 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 that was something also that I think is so neat because he went to an international school in um, in Korea. And so actually in some ways going to Korea reinforced his Americanness because, yeah. you know, it was like, where did you come from? America, you know? So when he came back, he was like, I'm American, you know, <laughs> but now since we've been back a year here in St. Louis and, um, he was like, people keep thinking that me and this other little boy who's Asian look the same. He's like, I don't think I look anything like Alex. <laughs> so now he has to understand that he is also Korean and what, you know, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And so again, it's like, not only do adopted kids have to, you know, we went through explaining our families, but we have to explain the racial part too. And that's something right. that my son has to like go through also now, you know? Um, but it's, it's kind of interesting because, I think like Dan and I, we were, you know, like I see more and more adoptees coupling up with other adoptees. And so it'll be, I would be really welcome chances to talk to other adoptee couples <laughs> uh, who are, you know, parenting and there, there are more and more of us, um, not, not a whole lot, but 
All right, it so is any a different listener out there who's an adoptee who married an adoptee can contact Holly McGinnis. <laughs> right. Please next contact study. me. Maybe we'll do a research study <laughs> about our experiences, how our kids turn out. <laughs> that would be great. I think that's a new group. <laughs> it is. To start. Is. Um, how was it? Have, what was your experience like uh, planning for and then having uh, your kids? Because I, I know. It's a it's a common uh, curiosity amongst adoptees where that's kind of almost like a void to fill because you know you for a lot of adoptees who have no contact with their birth families or yeah. anything like that there's nobody else that looks like them there's nobody that they can yeah. connect with exactly like that in terms of um, like a blood bond a yeah. genealogical bond so yeah. did you were you thinking about that while you were planning to have Kai and and Jane? yeah um. You know, I, I think I had a different experience. <laughs> so some, some women and some men, you know, are like, I, I blood is so important. I want to have a child and all that, you know, really clear about that. And I, yeah. I was never like that growing up. Like I have to have a child and have somebody who, you know, carries on my, um, on that. So when I found myself pregnant, um, I actually was like, I feel like there's an alien. Like I, I was very not connected actually to the fact that I had a baby that was, you know, genetically connected to me and blood connected to me and all that sort of thing. And in some ways, when I started also known as like, I had resolved like this issue about brown blood, you know, that blood is thicker than water. And I'm like, that's so not my experience. Like I have no, I don't know what that means. Like blood is yeah. thicker than water because all I know is non-blood. <laughs> so right. what is non-blood, you know? Yeah. And, and again, like, you know, I came up with, okay, blood's thicker than water, but love is thicker than blood, you know, because it's love ties that bind me to my family and, yeah. and, and define family. And I do remember when I met my, uh, biological family uh, again was that same year in 1996 being like oh so this is what blood connections are like okay and it was exciting to see someone who I could say oh my nose is like this or like that but I also quickly bumped into the limits of blood because they didn't know me they didn't know my history they um and and just as indelible as as uh, my blood connections is in, in, is the time that I had with my adoptive family and nothing can get that back. My biological family cannot get those years of, of my childhood, you know? And so that was lost. Um, and so when I was pregnant with Kai, actually, I was very uncomfortable. I was like, who is, and what is this thing inside of me? Um, and I actually wrote an essay that was like, how do you raise a biological child? Because I don't know anything about that. <laughs> and again, it sounds so crazy and ridiculous because we just, again, we have a cultural assumption that when you have a baby, it's a blood baby, you know, yeah. but to me and my lived experience, you know, I'm a child, not because of blood, but because of love. Um, and yeah. so I know how to love a child, but how, how does, how is it different you know, to have a blood child? Yeah. Um, and what was interesting, I think, as a, an adopted person was that there were things that uh, triggered, like, from my childhood. So uh, there was one point where um, you know, someone's like, oh, Kai's eyes are shaped just like yours. And I was like, oh, because I didn't like the way my <laughs> eyes are shaped. Um, but then over time, it was like, I got to fall in love with his eyes. And in falling in love with his eyes, I got to fall in love with my eyes, you know? And oh. so in accepting and loving him, I came to start to accept and love all of the parts that was me. Um, That's so, very sweet. 
Yeah, yeah. So that that is really quite powerful, you know. But, but of course, Dan and I are like, oh my God, are we giving him all of our anxieties and angst? And, you know? The answer is yes. I don't have kids, but I know the answer is yes. Yeah. For better or worse. Right, but right. that's not unique to the adoptee experience. I think that's no, just parenting no. in general. That is the parent. Yeah, you never parenting. You never feel like you know what you're doing, and so that has been another huge part. I think is like I have so much more empathy for adoptive parents because parenting period is hard work. Right. You're always second guessing yourself. There's really not one solid answer. When you think you get it, it changes <laughs> <laughs> because they change. You know, and so I really go back to like the best way to parent is to know yourself. And so in that way, I'm so happy that I did the work that I did on myself in my twenties. There's, there's this part of me that says like, you know, a lot of research on adoptees saying, Oh, they're so successful. You know, 80% of them have college degrees and are working and, you know, and that's a very artificial, I think, you know, marker of success, you know, um, to me, I feel like the time that was taken away in my twenties to figure out my identity, you know, could have been time spending money, you know, (laughs) like I could be doing something else. So there was a psychological cost because I had to resolve, but now like being a parent, I'm so glad that I engaged in all of those personal questions because I have some answers and they're not going to be my son's answers, but at least I have something, you know, and it's not um, all brand new. And uh, there's still so much left for me to learn about my own experiences that surprise me, that take me um, like, I don't know that I don't know it. (laughs) You know, and I had a lot of experience of that living in Korea, actually. (laughs) Like, oh, I thought this was resolved, but they, 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 you know, you resolve, you plateau, and then you just spiral up to the next level of the same question. (laughs) (laughs) So it's really a a, a, a never ending journey. You just get deeper and richer. Um, And so I always laugh to people because I remember when I was at the, you know, at the edge of the rabbit hole looking down, like, do I want to jump into this thing? You know? Um, And I, I would never, I wouldn't change any of it. Um, It was hard. It was and it continues to be hard. And again, that's why I think having community, having people who who know it, who get it, who love you and just are there, you know, not telling me it's right or wrong, but just able to listen, you know, and it goes beyond just my spouse, a community of people who yeah. have that um, because it's not an easy journey. But the to get to the point where you know all of who you are as part of that is what you will never know. I met my birth family, but there are things that I still will never know. And so when adoptees are like, well, if I just do X, then I'll know. I'll just do Y and then I'll know. Really, we'll never know. And the, 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 the thing that we have to get to without resignation, anger, you know, whatever is, is that it's okay to not know. Yep. Yeah. It's just okay. Accept it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, But with like, with with like love and compassion, you know, not with like anger and <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, that's a hard, uh, that's a hard road to travel, I think for a lot of people, but mm-hmm. I think it's, it's worth exploring for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess what I can say is that, is that when you're in that eye and it feels really awful, there is the other side. Um, yeah. And you will get through it to to the other side, wherever that other side might be, you know, yeah. and um, or and, or you can. And, you know, there's so many people that are willing to help you to get to that place, you know. 
Exactly. Um. All right. <laughs> well, with that, thank you so much for doing the show. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Mike. Everything. It's so great to have you on. Um, where can people find your work or can, if you're free to contact on like Twitter or something, do you have a Twitter? <laughs> I do have a Twitter thing. I never tweet. <laughs> I never post anything. I think where can people find your work at? Um, I have a website that I haven't, that's, that's been saying, uh, coming soon for, uh, I don't know, a decade. Um, I think the best way to reach me is really through Facebook. Um, it's Holly McGinnis, or you can email me at Holly M H O L L E E M at gmail.com. And hopefully I will start to post some of my work, um, and share. That would be good. And should we look forward to seeing you at the uh, AKA 20th in New York in April? I will be there. Awesome. All right. Well, then we will see you soon. uh, And I hope to come out to St. Louis at some point to come see and visit because I still have yet to meet Jay. And I I don't know if Kai remembers me, but we'll we'll find out, I guess. (laughs) Right. I I would love it. All right. Well, thanks so much. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. interview with holly mcginnis isn't that a great isn't she a great lady god i love that woman she's so amazingly sweet and smart and fun to be with and great to talk to every time i talk to her uh hopefully i'll get to talk to her again in the future uh once her dissertation is complete we can get that on uh, on air until then i hope you guys had a uh, great week and you're gonna start another great week uh wherever you are and whatever you're doing and whatever you do it with uh, or who you do it with, I guess. You know what I'm trying to say. You know what I'm trying to say. It's like uh, my awesome time in uh, Florida. Longest red lights that I've ever experienced in my entire life. I swear to God, they're like each a half hour long. But other than that, a great state, uh, as far as I've seen. If you're ever down in the Orlando area, I highly recommend Cask and Larder. Good restaurant, Cask and Larder. Uh, and uh, they got a little microbrewery there going on, too. Great cobia. To fish, I found out. Florida fish. Anyways, amazing time down in Florida. Great conversation with Holly McGinnis. Please join us next week when we talk with the amazing Skylar Swenson and uh, discuss some of her experiences. She's uh, living over there in Brooklyn. Travel all the way down to Brooklyn again. And I have a feeling I'm going to hike down there a lot more this year, <laughs> which I don't usually do, but that's okay. All right. And uh, let's get down to the same administrative stuff. Uh, you can always email me at therambleradhd at gmail.com. Tweet me, follow me on Twitter at uh, therambleradhd, and Facebook me at facebook.com slash therambleradhd. Uh, please uh, share it with your friends. Word of mouth is great. If you could publicly tweet it out or Facebook it or like it, share it. If you uh, are so inclined, leave a nice review on iTunes. Those always help me out. At least give me a little star rating if you got that there. If you're on an Android device or, or don't have iTunes or an iThing, uh, there are ways. I heard Pocket Casts is a good app for that. Uh, 
My friend Oliver turned me on to that uh, since he has an Android because he's not one of the uh, iSheeple like I am. And, uh, yeah, I th- we're also hosting on uh, podbean.com. So if all else fails, you can always go to podbean.com. I heard Google Play is going to have a podcast app now, too, for individuals. Uh, but I haven't heard how I can post on there yet. If you, if you know, send me an email or something. Um, and if you would be interested in being interviewed... Uh, or know somebody who'd be interested in being interviewed. This is for any international adoptees or transracial adoptees or people connected with adoption somehow. Then uh, drop me a line. I would be greatly appreciated. Music uh, today is provided by uh, The Bell at Needle Drop Records and uh, Ben Kaz. I, I still haven't gotten a pronunciation on that. I don't know if I'm right or not. I did, I did get that uh, from Christina. She didn't. She thought his name would, was Ben Cozy. I guess his, that's his nickname is Cozy, but... So maybe it's Coz. That that sounds like it could be correct too. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. Anyways, I'm glad you joined me for this episode with the uh, amazing Holly McGinnis. Uh, look up her work online. There's plenty of it around. All of her writing and stuff. Uh, you could just give it to Google. Uh, and I will talk to you guys next week. Have a great week. See ya. <laughs>